Greetings and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie and I'm here with my co-host Kev Gozer. Say hi Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, someone just recognized me from my dark mysterious past as a warlord, so I have to be on the run after we finish this recording. All right, well, we'll do our best not to tip, a, tip your uh, secret identity off too much as the episode progresses. So this week, we are going to be talking about the conscience of the king. And uh, we're not doing it alone. We are joined by Alice. Say hello, Alice. Hello. Welcome I to the show. I have been traveling the world as an incognito performer, and it's a great time. So, Kev, I recommend it. <laughs> I will look into that. Thankfully, not very many people listen to this podcast, so your identity is safe and nobody will be discovering what you've been up to, so we'll be perfectly fine. Now, as we always do when we have our guests on, we like to start by asking you what your history with the show is. So um, what's your history with Star Trek? How did you come to the show and, and, and what is it to you? Well, um, I grew up basically with Star Trek. Uh, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so I watched next generation as a kid and then when deep space nine started i started watching that and when voyager started i started watching that and it was just always kind of part of the the infrastructure i guess uh I watched the movies uh when the reboot movies came out is when i decided to sit down and watch the original series uh which was an experience um <laughs> it's both better and worse than i expected uh but i'm glad that it exists that's fair enough uh, have you seen the entirety of the original series now then uh i think i've skipped a couple of episodes uh there are like there are a couple of episodes that i've heard the plot of that i'm just not super interested in investigating completely uh like the original con episode from what i've heard of that plot i'm good, like good choice. Eh, i don't need to i don't need to see that <laughs> excellent fantastic thank you very much well as i say welcome to the podcast and it's uh wonderful to have you here uh kev would you care to give us our usual summary please all right in the conscience of the king uh kirk is summoned by an old friend dr thomas layton to investigate uh a performer in a shakespearean troupe who might be the former uh warlord evil governor kodos the executioner who like killed a bunch of people while ruling over a planet only kirk thomas layton and a few other people recognize him uh recognize him as like have seen his face before his body was burnt uh let's see so after attending a party thomas is thrown and lured uh caridian and which is the alias for the supposed kodos created in his acting troupe too uh, Kirk strikes up a romance with, let's call it that, with uh, <laughs> Curdian's daughter Lenore. Yeah, with Curdian's daughter Lenore, but then finds uh, Leighton murdered. Suspecting foul play, Kirk invites the acting troop onto his ship and is going to take them to their next destination. While there, he also learns that Lieutenant Kevin Riley, uh, previously seen in the Naked Time, is was also witness to Kodos, and so he hosts Riley in engineering, hoping that Riley will be able to see him. Riley gets poisoned. 
now with foul play definitely afoot. Uh, Kirk tries to lure a Caridian into admitting he's Kodos, and that is unsuccessful. What is successful is when Kirk foils Riley's attempt to get revenge on Kodos. Uh, Lenore just kind of confesses every crime randomly, and then <laughs> when she pulls a gun on Kirk, uh, Kodos blocks the shot. He dies. Lenore is imprisoned and goes insane, and that's it. Wrap it up. It's always always a satisfying way of uh, ending an episode. That, but uh, excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, well, Alice, since you're our guest this week, uh, let's kick off with you. Uh, how did you find this episode? Well, I mean, the first thing I think is in the future we have Jim, Tom, and Kodos as our human <laughs> human characters, and I I think the thing that works in this episode is sort of the heightened theatricality that is often present in the original series and the fact that we have a literal Shakespeare troupe as part of the plot is kind of an interesting synergy. So I liked that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I definitely think that works like invoking Shakespeare works well for this show. We already had, I think if not Shakespearean episode titles, at least episode titles that have that sort of elaborate, uh, naming scheme. So I, when I see The Conscience of the King, I did not think this would, I know it's a Shakespeare quote, did not think it would be so Shakespearean. I, honestly, I did not know anything about this episode watching it. I'm the noob in that episode description, of course. So yeah, I was <laughs> delighted that it opens on a performance of Macbeth in that really janky looking stage. Um, side note, it's interesting that the 23rd century has not uh, embraced the modernist staging from the like late 20th early 21st century that we went back to like cheap medieval looking sets instead of trying to reinterpret these texts as is de rigueur nowadays anyways <laughs> um but yeah it's the theatricality works really well um if we're transitioning to my overall opinion though there's just like elements that we'll get into that kind of get in the way of a really great premise and some really great scenes yeah, I, I'm pretty much on the same page there. I think, um, yeah, the theatricality works well. I mean, this is basically melodrama, the episode. Right. Um, but yeah. that's, that's fine because having Shakespeare as kind of the ultimate example of melodrama does lean into it. There have been plenty of melodramatic moments in Star Trek up up till this point. And yeah, Kev, you're quite right about the episode titles, if not always being direct quotes from Shakespeare, having that slightly um, melodramatic, slightly pretentious um, Silver Age uh, approach, although it's one that lies very much in our future. Things like For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky very much play <laughs> into that kind of, you know, slightly um, uh, slightly melodramatic, slightly uh, cod Shakespearean um, sort of method of writing. Um, but here it works incredibly well. And I, I mean, it's not necessarily something which these days one might look at and think oh well you know that's terribly original um but you know like shakespeare in space for 1966 was not something which had ever really been done before and although um shows like twilight zone had done a lot of kind of melodrama and had mixed sort of theater and production and 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 fourth wall breaking and, and a whole bunch of other stuff this kind of thing wasn't really um, particularly common and it will go on to be done again in Star Trek most notably in Star Trek 6 which is exactly the same thing it's, it's Shakespeare shot through Star Trek and you know it's incredibly effective I think for the record Star Trek 6 is the best of the of the uh, classic series movies but 
but here it's it's all yeah it's it, it it's all at the scale of a stage you know um star trek 6 is very expansive you know running between planets and and prison planets and trials and da 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 whereas here it's it's actually surprisingly small scale. We we get to see one colony and then everything else is just set in the ship. Um, and that does give it a sense of tightness, a little bit of claustrophobia about it, which helps to kind of increase some of the drama uh, which is being realized. But overall, yeah, there are still, there are definite holes here. Okay, yeah. I think that crucial first hole, might as well get into it, is... Uh right from the start the computer identifies his daughter as being 19 years of age and then we have to watch kirk romancer for half the episode and <laughs> even uh, with the age gap weirdness it's not good romance scenes it's not well written i mean shatner p- turns on the charm he's a good actor but like even if oh she's a 30 year old woman and then it's still just i think those scenes fall very flat and don't do a lot. It doesn't even really come at the end because Shatner doesn't seem to turn up to have to throw hands with her <laughs> and stop her little pulling a gun out thing. It's not like that really factors into the end of it. It just feels like killing time. Yeah, there's quite a bit of killing time in this episode. And that, like, for Kirk's plan to work, he does not need to try and seduce Lenore. Right. Like, it's absolutely just extraneous having a chance to show Shatner's charming face, smooth talking, but yeah. Yeah. It's just the question I have is how can this guy have his picture in the computer, but only nine people know what he looks like. That's That's... the biggest plot hole of all. That's the massive (laughs) gaping plot hole that we were kind of shuffling up to the lip of this chasm, but okay, let's, we can jump in. I do want to say one thing, actually, because I slightly disagree with what Kev said there. Um, I don't think William Shatner is terribly good at turning on the charm. Like particularly the planet scene, just before he discovers the dead body. He's not very good in that. He's all right in the party, and he has some really... Yeah, the party... Yeah, he's good there. You can you can kind of see the devil may care charm. Um, but when he's actually like going full flirtation, both on that planet scene and especially that scene in the Enterprise mm-hmm. down by the shuttle bay, when he gets that line about if I had arranged it for it to be dark, there would have been music and flowers, and it's oh, well, you know, <laughs> come on. <laughs> um, yeah, he struggles a little bit with that, unfortunately. But he's very charming in the party, and at least there you could you could kind of imagine it. However, yes. This this vast quantum sized massive gaping hole at the middle of the episode. So we've got a picture in the computer banks and a picture of Caridian, and they look pretty similar, and yet nobody else can key into it. Like the idea of the witnesses um, being killed off one by one is uh, that's really compelling. That's a very compelling episode. But oh, there's a photo. Does somewhat undermine it. Yeah. It's just, and the the setup with Tarsus 4, it's like, okay, there were thousands of people on this planet, and only nine of them know what this guy looks like. Yeah, it's... What? <laughs> it's such a good idea to have this. the only nine people can identify, like, there's only these number of witnesses, but, like, the crime is too outsized, and, and then there's the photo, of course, so it's just like... They need I think they need it to be a more subtle murder or something of that nature. Like, I mean, you could still have it be Kevin Riley's, was it his parents or 
just, yeah, just a generic his, family. Yeah, well, his his parents. I think he gets the line that you killed my mother. Or sorry, he killed Got my it. mother and my father when he's when he's down at the actual performance. Yeah. If it was yeah, if it was just like only nine people witnessed the crime and but they couldn't ever find the person, then like and that was the only people he murdered or something. I think that would work better. But I don't know. I'm not a big fan of armchair armchair show running i guess you'd say <laughs> it is just still no but i think i think given yeah. the size of the plot hole i don't think that's unfair and i think the other big problem is is that he was the governor it's like yeah. imagine like the governor of california had executed four thousand people like people know what he looks like you right. know it's like, like if it had been like some random guy that sees power in a difficult moment and so you know he had been anonymous beforehand even that would lend it a degree of credibility but like he was the governor of a colony that's not a small thing so yeah yeah, yeah if you're famous problem. enough to have like a nickname like kodos the executioner <laughs> yeah exactly people will know who you are yeah god <laughs> i mean you, you joke about the governor of california murdering people and oh i don't think newsom is capable of that i mean there's other governors in this country right now that's like oh no this is this oh, might age yeah. badly that sentence <laughs> yeah yeah so sorry if somebody's listening to this five years in the future and something terrible has happened in texas <laughs> oh, God. um but yeah it's i think it just speaks to how in general the plotting of this is very janky overall like, I, it's such a good idea, good hook, but they can't really think of much more to do about it other than have one person die, have another person almost die, and then just have everything. Like, there's no satisfying conclusion to this episode really at all, which is a shame because I mean, we can get into how that last scene really is good on its own terms. But in terms of wrapping up the mystery, so to speak, um, and they have a good solution to the mystery, too. I like that it's the daughter doing the killing a lot yeah i i think that it's that's an interesting twist that it's not him trying to hide his past it's his daughter trying to fix things for him that is actually quite affecting and the other thing i did like is that there's this the piece in the middle where kirk is trying to like deal with all of this by himself and he's not like explaining what's going on and Spock is kind of like trailing behind him trying to like figure out what's going on as well because he's worried. I I like that sort of display of their sort of relationship. Yeah, it's a nice flip on the menagerie um where it was Spock doing the skulking around and Kirk was like what's going on here. So I I do like it when one gets to sort of scheme and the other one like is upset that he can't that they weren't let in on the scheme in the first place. It's a good episode for those Kirk Spock McCoy scenes as well. I think they're some of the strongest moments within the episode. Mm -hmm. Particularly the idea that Spock goes to McCoy once he starts having concerns about the way that Kirk's behaving. That's a nice thing. We've seen it a little bit before, but again, it, it confirms that for all that they have an antagonistic relationship, there is genuine respect there. And it takes a little bit of time for McCoy to get on board with the idea that Kirk is actually having problems or that there might be something to Spock's suspicions. But once he's on board, he's on board. That whole scene in Kirk's cabin where um, Kirk is sort of basically telling Spock to take a hike and, and, and McCoy steps in and says, it's his job, you know it is. And suddenly he has Spock's back in a way that hasn't been necessarily 
clear up to that point. And it's that, again, that idea that for all that there's an antagonism, McCoy has that respect for Spock as well mm -hmm. and will stand up for him when Spock is trying to do the right thing and is trying to do his job, you know, to the best of his ability. And, and with both of them, it pushes Kirk to a point where he starts seeing the logic and what it is that they're saying he starts to understand what they're trying to get at it's very very effective and it's not a long scene or whatever i think it's maybe like a minute or something but again there's so much which is communicated between it both in terms of what's said and what's left unsaid and it's a really it's a really effective moment that that, that it, you know we've had a couple of spot Kirk McCoy scenes up to this point, but it's another one that really kind of adds to the the, the volume of of text that we have that shows the strength of the relationship between these three characters. Yeah, I really like Spock and McCoy together is one of my favorite things about the original series because they have that they're antagonistic, but in like a respectful, we both like know who each other is kind of way, which is just it's they're just so much fun to watch because they'll they'll poke at each other but at the end of the day they they always work together and i i like that mccoy is kind of similar to both like the person being suspicious of the schemer in this menagerie conscious of the king flip so to speak like in both cases he wants to give the other person who's doing the ploy the benefit of the doubt but then gets upset when he feels betrayed. And that's just a good consistency of character. I'm sorry, remind me, Menagerie is the one where they have Captain Pike in the right in the chair? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so Spock is the one who's like smuggling Captain Pike out and then making them watch episodes, old episodes of Star Trek. That was the unaired pilot. <laughs> right. uh, but yes, uh, so that, that's just why it's relevant because Spock was doing a lot of stuff behind Kirk's back in that one. And... In our very next aired episode, the relationship is flipped, and it's just interesting how they react in different ways. More, mostly, it's fun that Spock figures out Kirk's scheme much faster than Kirk figures out Spock's. <laughs> of course he would. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes, makes it perfectly logical, you might say. <laughs> I, um, I apologize. Yeah. I guess, then speaking of just other... Uh, going back to bad things about the plotting, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, I... I don't like how Lenore just like word vomits the confession at the drop of a hat at the end. It's such like, there's so many good ways for like the hero trying to solve the mystery to get a confession out of the villain by tricking them somehow. And like, I've seen it, I've seen it so many times in so many great stories like this. And this is just, Oh, uh, we're at a uh, 48 minutes on a 50 minute time slot. All right, wrap it up. And it's just very, almost insulting it's like come on we could do a little more creative here be a little creative yeah because it did come out of nowhere like yeah. that character did not get a lot of uh development it was just oh she's a pretty girl she's uh caridian's daughter she dresses like a barbie <laughs> uh but and then we find out that she's got this like really deep-seated madness that yeah it's it does come out of nowhere <laughs> well and and oh she's mad is never going to be a satisfying conclusion mm -hmm. to any kind of episode and and because there's no build to it we don't really get any hints 
that she has kind of like any any sort of mental health issues up to that point. So it's just like right. she's fine. She's kind of in love with the captain. She wouldn't mind um, <clears throat> riding his spaceship. And <laughs> you know, then suddenly, oh, it was me all along. Ah, whoops! I've accidentally killed my father. Oh dear, I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm mad. It's it's just that's a very dramatically unsatisfying way to end the episode. At least if she'd had some kind of build up to it, if there'd been some hints that she there was something off about her or that Kirk had suspicions, or maybe Spock had discovered an inconsistency, or mm-hmm. I don't know, just yeah, something. Yeah, they never do anything when they're doing any of their research into Caridian's past. They don't do anything about her, like what her life has been like. Has she been, have they been doing this theater thing since she was a child? Like, did she grow up being a itinerant actor? Because maybe that would make you go crazy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but it's because it's, it's that relationship between her and her father is so key to the plot, but we don't really see it. Yeah, it's it's weird that the ending is so rushed and there's so many holes in it when we also have like a long scene, like especially like the third romance scene on the Enterprise view observation deck, what I guess what that would be called, and. And the scene where Uhura just sings for three minutes, which is very lovely. I love Nichelle Nichols singing, of course. But, like, it's weird we took the time for that and not to establish character or uh, move the story forward so it wasn't rushed at the end. It's very odd. Watching that, I was like, they would never do this on a show these days where you mm-hmm. just stop the plot to listen to someone sing. I can un- it's a I lovely can un- song. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it was specifically written for this episode as well um it was it was requested this episode went through a lot of rewrites you might be able to tell and mm-hmm. and one of the requests was was that um was that ahura uh, got a song um the language in which the original memos were drafted is not necessarily the kind of language that one might hope would be used in the 21st century um but it was uh, very effective and you know Nichelle Nichols has a great voice and it's just refreshing to see her character be given something to do, even if it is this. And, you know, I get what they're going for in terms of establishing Riley's loneliness. Um, and I, it's also nice that Riley is the character. It's not just some random person we've we've never seen before. Okay, he's only been in yeah. one other episode, but, you know, he's been in one other episode. So that's, that's something as well. Um, uh, I just want to interject with a quick memory alpha fact. It was going to be a random person we've never seen before, yes. but they happened to accidentally cast the same actor. Accidental continuity. Yeah, well, it's the same with Mr. Leslie at the helm. Um, he'd been cast like three or four times, I think, so far, but he'd just been some anonymous helmsman. And so this time they decided to actually give him a name because he'd just been like cast a bunch of times. Oh, that's mm-hmm. so funny. The other thing I liked about that scene was like sort of the the hangout vibes that the crew on their off time just sort of hang out and listen to people singing in that sort of break room mm-hmm. and chat on the intercoms with people who are still on duty. That sort of gives it a a realistic kind of feel that you don't always get in this show because it can be so stagey sometimes, even within the same episode. 
I think that is one of the great strengths of this episode, actually. I mean, I completely agree with you about the idea that these are characters who, you know, like they have downtime. They have times when they're not on shifts. Presumably somebody else is sitting at the communications console when, you know, Ahura's down, you know, strumming her harp for, for the lonely lieutenant. Um, not a euphemism. And there's no, um, you know, there's, there's, there's no sense that these are just like programmatic characters. They do have things going on in their lives out with their roles in a particular uh, episode. I think one of the other things this episode does really well is is establish the way that, you know, Kirk also has a life which extends out beyond the episodes that we've seen to date. So the idea that he's got this friend who he can pull a favor in for, so, you know, to divert somebody else's ship, the idea that he has a past that impacts his present. All these things are sort of relatively minor in the grand scheme of things but they help to build an image of a character who does actually have a life you know beyond the four walls of the television uh we get a little bit of that with spock as well when he offhandedly refers to you know not having his uh what is it is his his father wasn't um given the dubious blessing of of alcohol or whatever the line is um, so we get a little reference there, but you know, like like Kirk has a proper sense of history here, and those small things help to draw a much bigger picture of somebody who's who's got a life that extends out. I do think both with Kirk and those scenes in the rec hall, um, you know, they really the, the episode does a good job of establishing these characters with a history. Yeah, I I agree, but one thing about that the implications for the past with Kirk is like that's the thing I remember most about this episode, because if the thing on the planet with Kodos happened 20 years ago, then Kirk would have been like a teenager, right? Yeah, I think so. So does that mean that his family lived there? That is vague and unspecified. So vague. And then part of me like envisions, and I realize that this is just kind of where my brain goes, but like, was it some kind of weird field trip for, like, <laughs> Starfleet Academy? Where, But they don't, they never go into any detail about it, and it will never be brought up again. So it's just kind of left there hanging for people to, like, weird people like me to think about when we're bored at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just a kind of just sloppiness to the writing that you don't see in a continuity of obsessed age as this one and i think i mean obviously there are some times when who cares about continuity it's do it makes for a good story but it doesn't yeah, yeah. Lend it, yeah doesn't lend itself to a good story in this time if the plot holes are within the episode itself i mean william shatner is a person in his mid-30s i mean you can't say 20 years ago and he was there and expect the audience to <laughs> not ask questions even if this episode is taken out of context so it's just I don't know. I think it's just the limits of TV writing from this long ago. Not just, this isn't just like modern questions we're asking. I think this is just like, I feel like we've gotten savvier in general about pacing and constructing an episode of television. Then it's just, you know, learning from what happened before in practice. I don't think, I mean, I'm not an expert on 60s television, but I don't think this is an abnormally bad or, Standard. I don't. I can't compare it. I guess, but I definitely feel like you wouldn't have these kinds of like very obvious holes in a script written nowadays. Yeah, and I don't even like. I don't even mind the the lack of continuity or oh, yeah. like the fact that 
whoever wrote this episode was obviously not working off of any kind of show Bible or anything like they would nowadays. Like in some ways that makes it more interesting because mm -hmm. you know that people are just kind of writing the story for the episode. But then again, the story for this episode doesn't make sense even within itself. Right. Well, I think the other thing is, is uh, particularly with Kirk being on the planet, it's not even a whole. I mean, there are plenty of explanations, which, you know, we've already come up with uh, that that would help to, to fill that in. And particularly, again, also because there's a, a conspicuous edge difference between uh, William Shatner and uh, Bruce Hyde, who played who played uh, Kevin Riley. Um you know, like I mean, there, there's plenty of easy justifications for this. Like, yeah, maybe he wasn't a Starfleet. Uh, but I suppose it depends how old you think Captain Kirk is in this episode. Like, Shatner's mid-30s, but that doesn't necessarily map onto exactly how old Captain Kirk is. He could be a few years older, could be a few years younger. I mean, we don't know. It, it's it's not even that it's a plot hole. It's just that it's they don't bother to explain it at all. And um, yeah, like why was Kirk on this planet? What was he doing there? How did he get off? Why was he spared? Did, was it just he was one of the four thousand? Did he hide? There's so many questions that you know. I, I don't want to do the future drama. You know that just brings up more questions. But it does. Yeah, this is where fan fiction comes from. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, yeah. You, you know there's going to be a spin-off <laughs> novel about that somewhere, right? I have no doubt. <laughs> but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's very frustrating to have an episode with so many good qualities. And I think we should maybe talk about some of those great scenes soon. But then also just like have like a very lack of care on the margins. Or maybe these were margins that were just rewritten so many times through this going through multiple hands as you alluded to, J.G., that that's what caused some of these issues but however they came about yeah it just feels like i don't know insulting is too strong i mean i'm i'm not insulted that i watch an hour of television and it let me down in some very specific ways even though i overall pretty much enjoyed it but it's it's definitely confusing at least and yeah you feel like the the premise and setup of the episode deserved better um, but yeah, I want to talk about good scenes now, if that's all right. And specifically, I love the scene where Kirk confronts Kodos in the room and sort of tries to get the sort of confession that he's the same person out of him. And uh, was it Arnold Moss? Yes, who is playing him. And he just does such a great job of being like, I'm not going to say anything specifically damning, but I am going to <laughs> heavily allude that I don't think I did anything wrong, which is, it's just fantastic. Yeah, he's a, he was really good. I was impressed with his performance, like just as someone who does not care, mm -hmm. like he's moved on, he's doing this now. He knows that you know, but he's not going to like, give you the satisfaction right i thought it was very interesting yeah and i love how direct kirk is in that scene as well you know he doesn't mess about you know basically his first question is are you kodos the executioner and then everything else kind of stems from that and and it it's a really well written scene because the way that he immediately replies yes and then uh if that's what you want me to be and you know it's just like it's it is kind of i mean it's just playing with expectations but it's very effective it works it works very well 
And again, it does have that slightly sort of cod Shakespearean thing. Oh, yes, I am this if you wish it me to be. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Um, but, you know, Arnold Moss is, I really like his performance in the role. I think he does a really good job of, of being able to, you know, play this character as somebody who is so tired. Uh, yeah, that might be, <laughs> might be slightly over the top. Um, but, you know, he does, I think he does generally do a very, very, credible job and everything about that scene is 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 so effective especially when when kirk asks him to read out like the speech that he gave before he executed the people and the way kirk accuses him you know you never even looked at it and he's already got his his deflection back i learned my lines very quickly (laughs) and all this kind of stuff but it's great it's just such a it's such a great way of showing you know, two very intelligent characters kind of batting this this argument back and forth between each other, like uh, you know, a game of tennis or whatever. It's it's very effective, and and I think it's one of Shatner's best moments in the episode mm-hmm. as well. He's incredibly strong in those scenes. Yeah, I think that's when Shatner shines the best. Here is when he almost has like sort of this equal footing with Moss. Like he, they're both very theatrical actors, which necessary for both characters and. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think all the moves, like putting the speech in front of him and seeing if he recognizes it and just asking about his opinions of it gets good material out of Moss for like very doing these very clear hints. And that's, that's when you sort of have it confirmed for the audience, but because it's nothing actionable, I, I think it keeps the tension going really well. Yeah. Seeing Kirk just not get what he wants, mm-hmm. which Generally speaking, Captain Kirk, you you have the overall feeling that Captain Kirk gets what he wants, but he doesn't have the, he has no leverage in the situation, so it's it's very compelling. I think it's also telling that um, in that particular scene, and this is also true of the scenes with uh, Spock and McCoy as well, but particularly when it comes to the guest cast. Like, you know, William Shatner is a a classically trained actor. You know, he did a whole bunch of Shakespeare before he he kind of moved to television and and before he did Star Trek. So he is, you know, he is Shakespearean actor. And I just think you can see him upping his game when he's faced with somebody else who is also, you know, clearly a Shakespearean actor, somebody who's, who's done a lot of stage work. And and I think that does draw out the best in his performance. I was sort of critical of the way that um, Shatner was acting when he was um, acting opposite Barbara Anderson, uh, who's Lenore. Uh, and she's clearly just, I'm sorry to say it, but she's just not as good an actor. That's as simple <laughs> as that. Um, and so the, it, it, it's a little bit flat. But yeah, opposite Arnold Moss, he's suddenly on top of his game again. And and it, it need that scene needs to work because the whole episode kind of, pivots around that exchange that's that's the whole kind of driving force both you know everything that's been led up to that point and then kind of everything that sort of flows from it it's kind of the key scene in the whole episode i would say um and yeah i mean shatner absolutely nails it as indeed does, does arnold moss so it makes a huge difference that they got that one right yeah i can't agree more um let's see and i know we've had criticisms of that how the final breakdown comes out but I, I mean, I you said Lenore, it's not she's not a great actor, and I think I broadly agree. But I think where she shines is the mental breakdown. Like everything around the mental breakdown is not good, how it's set up and its consequences. But I think in that moment, I really like the performance of just having like her 
collapse and start quoting Shakespeare. I mean, maybe it's just the Shakespeare quoting, but you're also saying like things that aren't direct quotes, but like Shakespearean like language mm. around it. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just a short circuit to my brain, but I thought that scene, it was dramatically effective. It got me rehooked, even though I was still in the back of my mind, like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I thought it was emotionally affecting when she finally has her breakdown, even though it did sort of come out of nowhere. But mm-hmm. once she was sort of there on the ground having killed her father, I was like, oh, this is this is a mess. And I, and I did like wonder what was going to happen to her. And again, like wondering what her life was like, that this is how things turned out Mm -hmm. so there was something there to be engaged with yeah yeah there is um but i I, again everything about that that finale just seems seems rushed and like i don't want to say that she was a bad actor i just i would say that she's less good i think that's maybe fairer yeah um but again like her character is just so just shoved off to one side um, like she has a mental breakdown and then McCoy just reels off a list of things that happened to her in the final scene. And that's just so unsatisfying mm-hmm. um, in a way that like, even when the episode has faltered up to that point, which is done a couple of times, but it, it hasn't been unsatisfying in that kind of way. And that kind of like, Oh, well she had a breakdown and uh, she, she uh, you know, she's, she's all right though, but she thinks her dad is still alive and off giving performances somewhere. So like, that's a happy ending, right? I was like, no, no, and not at all. And and like the like the ambiguity of um, uh, McCoy sort of trying to draw, oh, you know, well, you know, you really liked her, didn't you? And and Kirk sort of not giving him a direct answer. I'm not not wholly sold on that either because I don't think that the episode has done enough up to that point to really sort of suggest one way or the other. Um, and you know, like Kirk had had that line about, oh well, you know. At first, uh, you know, I'm a tool. You sure are, love. Um, <laughs> no, I'm um, kidding. Yeah, don't don't give actors lines like that. That's not good writing. Um, I, but anyway, Kirk's response to it is at first. Um, but I don't know. The episode just doesn't do enough to really build much in the way of the of the the, the kind of potential romantic or dramatic. Um, friction between Kirk and Lenore so I, I, that ending doesn't land either yeah like the way it ends with like a sh- shot of Kirk sort of smiling that seemed really off, off. yeah exactly yeah. the word yeah I I don't know what else to go I guess it speaks to sort of I guess the weak core of this episode that we have nothing left to do but bop to moments we that stood out to us uh, I'll go to another one I think Thomas Layton for as Little as he's in the uh, episode, I think, leaves a good impression. I like the opening scene where you see that he has something on his eye, at least, in the very shadowed theater. I, I love that teaser, by the way. Let's maybe talk about that Oh, yeah, that's first. a great teaser. Yeah, yeah. The teaser is very teaser. interesting because yeah. you're, you're just, it's a really, a, you're just right in the middle of something and you don't know what's going on. Yeah, the in media rest of it all. Like, I mean, you can tell it's a Shakespearean play pretty quickly, but still, it's such a great shocked to see that sort of thing in the middle of your space show and the contrast of that with the very futuristically dressed audience is so good the shadows in the audience where kirk is talking to tom is so good um and then i love these just the premises laid out in like two minutes like he is that guy like 
So you don't exactly know the extent of Kodos's crimes yet, but just there's an actor in this production who has done something bad that this eye-patched person is a witness to, and you're off to the races. And it's just a really, really good teaser. And a show that's had a lot of good teasers so far. I mean, even when the episodes don't work out, usually they're set up very well. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. I think yes. it's a, an excellent episode uh, opener, and, and it is one of the great strengths of this show. You know, you need a hook here's your hook, you'll be back after the title sequence and commercials. You know, that's it, it, it's something the show is is very good in that. And I think it's also something which is very easy to overlook these days, but it's 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 very dramatically effective. There isn't always, um, you know, there isn't always a necessity to have, you know, like 10 minutes before your opening credits. Yeah, we've got, what, about 120 seconds here? Boom, done, Space the Final Frontier. It's 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 sort of almost brutally efficient in, in what it does, but yeah, it absolutely hooks you. Yeah. And then I really like the reveal of Leighton's, like, it's not just the eye patch, but half his face is missing. And I think that is well staged, where you don't notice in the teaser because it's so darkly shadowed. And then in the first scene proper, like, they just do such a good job with staging the camera, blocking the camera, and hiding it. You see something is obviously covering at least his eye, but then the turn reveal, I think, was so effective. And the score does its, of course, dramatic sting and all that. And it's just like a little thing that shows the little things in this episode can work really well when there's big things not getting in their way. Yeah, definitely. I also want to call out the scene uh, with the phaser on overload as well. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I I liked that scene a lot. Yeah, it's good, right? It had had real... um, in like peril i guess yeah like again the the tension yeah sorry i was just the way like everyone sort of immediately went to like serious uh problem solving or that's not the word i'm looking for Mm -hmm. but just like that sort of serious tension and just like they're all i mean i think problem solving is a if it's not the exact word, it's still a good way to put it. They're all snapped yeah. to like this full attention and they're uh, out of their sort of reverie and just trying to get survive. And I think in that survival mode, uh, I think Shatner Nimoy and Kelly are all like very good at sort of snapping into that. Yeah. yeah he, even... Like survival mode. That's, I think what I was, I was going for. Like everyone's really like Spock wants to stay, but he goes because he, has to obey orders from the mm-hmm. captain and it was just you feel like something bad might really happen even though it's like three quarters of the way through the episode and obviously no one's going to die <laughs> but, but the drama of it still works and even that like the, the like the whine of the phaser uh as it just like, kind of builds and builds and builds i mean it's a very simple effect but it, it works dramatically and and like oh and kirk Harder's Double red alert. Not just red yeah. alert, but double red alert. That's even more ready and even the more su- alerty. The super danger zone. <laughs> um, but that's great. And like and even you know, again, they're they're not complex things. But the image of the phaser in in the like the red alert panel just lit as a silhouette inside it. That's yeah. again, that's incredibly effective. It's they're little bits of stagecraft, but they, they do all add up to something. And I, I liked the aesthetics of like Kirk's room he's got like a bunch of like normal books and little knickknacks all over the place which it it's sort of like why would a person on a starship have those kind of things but it's like it gives him a little bit of personality 
And I also, I don't, the, the house on the planet where Tom and his wife lived, it, it was so much just like a 1960s house. <laughs> oh yeah, and, right, right down to having the Star Trek theme tune as like cocktail bar music. Yes! <laughs> and I expected there to be a, a conversation pit somewhere. And, <laughs> but it was so it was so funny that some in some ways it's just okay, it's just modern nineteen sixties life on this planet with a purple sky and plaster rocks. I I I enjoy that. Yeah, I like science fiction that like dates itself. Like it because it t- tells you about the era itself as well. It lets you it almost makes it feel also otherworldly in its own way that I don't know. I I just love the more science fiction leans into, yes, this was made in this year, in this era and commenting on these issues. Um, the, it's just, it's just nice flavoring, especially to go back to it. It almost makes it age better to have things that on the surface would seem like they would age worse. No, I completely agree. And like even Kirk having a drawer full of tidy whiteies as they're desperately <laughs> hunting for the phaser, you know, it's like, yeah, yep, that that probably does make sense from a from a nineteen sixty six perspective. Sure, that's that's fine, you know. Um, but it does, it does. I agree. It does give like sort of character. It does mean that you know, it's not. You know, I think one of the things, particularly, this is going to be true once nineteen seventies kind of sci fi um, gets underway, particularly early nineteen seventies sci fi is that there is this real tendency to lean towards sterility uh, in the way that the future is portrayed. And obviously, even although I know it's 1969, that 2001 is kind of the harbinger of that approach. There's so many kind of early 70s, kind of like fairly slow, fairly ponderous sci-fi movies where, you know, everything is white, everything is is flat, everything is kind of utilitarian, which to an extent, you know, I mean, Star Trek's an action adventure series, it's bright, it's primary colored, and it's very much leaning into that aesthetic, um, that the kind of the more sterile approach is probably far, far more realistic than you would get in something like Star Trek. But it's also kind of visually much less appealing. Now that does kind of start to break down, particularly with the arrival of Star Wars in, in 76. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are still plenty of movies after that which still have that that kind of very sterile kind of white approach to 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 kind of design aesthetics. And I I kind of love the fact that Kirk has old books about the place, a drawer full of tidy whiteies, uh, you know, like a, a couple of statues or whatever it is. You know, it, that's that's far more interesting and a much more interesting way of telling us something about the character than just having somebody stand there and go, haha. Well, you know, I picked this up on Gamma Exelon Five when we rescued the native girls from the evil warrior Zandors or some other bloody thing. And it doesn't matter what it is, but you know, it's. It's, just, it's a nice way of demonstrating, again, that Kirk has some kind of history or some kind of interests which go beyond the, the sort of four walls of the television or, or the pages of this particular script. I think to sort of maybe draw a bow on it all, I'm going to bring us back to Shakespeare, which is also just such a great specific in this episode. It could have been, there could have been any reason why Kirk... And before Kirk, Leighton was crossing paths with uh, Caridian, a.k.a. Kodos. And to have that reason be he's in a Shakespearean acting troupe is just fun. It's much more fun than any other reason than just he's like an, an undercover engineer working on starships. Or he's just like a waiter at a restaurant. Like, it's so fun to have him be, even though it also does, makes no sense for his double <laughs> life cover. 
<laughs> he's a well-known yeah. actor. Let's align that for. Uh, <laughs> Just say, well, yeah, to talk about hiding in plain sight. Let's have right. this murderer play lots of characters who are murderers. Right. But like, on a... and not get rid of the Sorry. facial hair. Keep yeah, the facial hair. Exactly. <laughs> but that creates a lot of fun parallels with Macbeth and Hamlet, and. Sure, besides those fun parallels and the idea, the Hamlet-esque idea of catching a murderer through a play, the Shakespeare stuff is not, is not relevant at all to the rest of the episode, to the story or anything. But specifics, those are just very good specifics. And it really yeah. helps elevate this, I think, what could have been... I think if the specifics weren't there, this episode would have been kind of a snooze. But it really helps make the best scenes pop and give it a little more life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. And if it's not a wholly successful experiment, and particularly there's the you know there's not a vast amount of you know action going on in this episode, it is sort of relatively cerebral, I suppose. Um, but it manages to compensate by actually being you know pretty smart. It, you know there are there are definitely holes, there are definitely places where it falls down. Um, and if it's not completely successful, I think it's definitely one of those episodes which manages to be. Um, more of an interesting, I don't want to say failure, that's too strong, but, you know, an interesting mm -hmm. attempt. Maybe that's a better way of putting it, even if it's not a wholly successful attempt. Yeah, I mean, I think we're now starting to get to episode ratings, so let's drop them. <laughs> I think uh, not a failure, but an interesting attempt that doesn't lift its premise means that I'm going to land on 7 out of 10, and it pains me to give it that low, because, like, I mean, I studied Shakespeare for, like, a semester abroad in Stratford in college. That's how deep into Ooh. him I am. Yeah. Oh, nice. um, I can't believe that. I, you're reacting to that, Gigi. I haven't mentioned that to you before. That's I incredible to me. I don't recall you ever having... You mean, like, Stratford in England? Stratford yeah, in England. yeah. I, for a, semest a summer semester, I went I to don't Stratford. Remember, I've oh, known you wow. for five years now, and I don't remember you ever mentioning that. That's incredibly cool. I love Stratford. I've been there many times. Oh. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. But that's so awesome. So beautiful. Yeah. Um, man, we don't have to go into my summer vacation <laughs> years ago. Uh, yes, I. So I love Shakespeare as my point. And Did you murder anyone? And are you now pretending to be a podcast host in order to get away with it? That's really the only information <laughs> that I required at this stage. No, unfortunately, that'd be much more interesting. But I'm just boring old me. Um, but yes, to get to my point, I, there should be a lot of things working this episode: Shakespeare, murder mysteries, etc. And instead, it just kind of can't quite land the plane on any of those elements instead it's a collection of some great scenes some groaner scenes and kind of missing a core to a really great premise so that's why i'm landing on seven i think i'm gonna go for seven as well i think that's i think that's fair i don't i i ah, yeah i, I don't want to say it requires one more draft i think the opposite might be true i think it might require one less draft um i think the episode just keeps getting in the way of itself in a way that isn't quite working um the good bits are great the bad bits are oh dear um um and i think the good bits overall win out but maybe not by a particularly wide margin yeah I think seven is like the floor I could give an episode with this premise, but it hit that floor. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I'm right there with you guys. I think it's around a six and a half, a seven, um, because this is one of the episodes that I always remember, but it's because I get lost in thinking about the weird summer camp that teenager Captain Kirk went on <laughs> where he was trapped on a 
starving colony for undisclosed reasons. Um, but also Shakespeare, because I did theater in college and anything with Shakespeare must be good, obviously. Or not terrible. Also, any episode where Dr. McCoy is talking about how much he likes to drink. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also gets at least a half of a point just for that because it's always hilarious to me. Yeah, oh yeah. That that gorgeous line that he gets is that um if you won't join me, at least don't judge me. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we are as one. We have sevens across the board. Fantastic. Well, I think we can probably uh, wrap ourselves up for this episode now and move on to recommendations. Uh Alice, what would you care to recommend? So I'm going to recommend something that also has connections to things that I liked when I was a teenager. Uh, I'm recommending the AMC version of Interview with a Vampire, which I think is out. I think I'm watching it on the app. I'm not sure. I th it must be on the television station as well. Um, but I think that it is excellent. I think it's doing a really good job of being an adaptation like it has updated the setting time period and updated the background of some of the characters in ways that I think are very interesting and expansive of the story. And also they've made all of the gay subtext in Anne Rice's novels very, very text, which I think is excellent as well. And I'm not, I don't remember the names of any of the actors, but the guy playing Lestat is amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't know where they found him. He's so good. And also the guy playing the interviewer is one of these guys who looks very familiar. I don't know where I've seen him before, but he's got like the presence of someone who plays a lot of psychologists on cop shows. <laughs> but I... I haven't enjoyed a television show as much as this for a long time, and I am a big fan of all vampire fiction, so that is my recommendation. Yeah, I fully co-sign. I've also seen the three episodes that are out so far, and it's just, it's incredible. I spend most of the episode just, like, howling in laughter at just, like, how audacious it is. <laughs> um I, I do know the names of actors, and I will shout them out. Uh, it's Sam Reed, who's playing Lestat. Who I don't, he's the one I know the least, but he is really good at playing the kind of uh, total jerk that role requires. Um, just really, like, getting into being the sexy and dangerous side of that character. Uh, and the interviewer is Eric Bogosian, who you definitely have seen. He's all over the place. You can look up his credits. Um, I know he's had big roles in succession recently and in uncut gems i loved him in those but like he's been working for a while the one i want to shout out though is jacob anderson as louis who i'm oh he's great. yeah i'm not as i'm not familiar with the Anne rice books or the original movie but i understand that it's like it's lestat and daniel the interviewer who are kind of the more characters that pop from it but louis yeah louis a drip in the book yeah like he's he's a sad sack man. That's kind of so they're doing a great job with him, like making him more dimensional. Oh yeah, that's, that's what I was gonna say. Is like that's kind of what I picked up from sort of culture osmosis. But uh, in this show, he is fantastic. He's my favorite character. I think Jacob Anderson is riveting in the performance, and 
I think changing the character to be a black man and like fully incorporating not colorblind casting, but color aware casting, you might call it. And instead, uh, like do the New Orleans setting, all of those changes seem to be working out really well. And he is just like perfect. Like he's giving such a deep performance and it's wonderful. So yeah, I highly recommend interview with the vampire as well. I subscribed to AMC plus for it. That's how good it was. And now I feel obligated to watch Moonhaven. So Moonhaven is spectacularly dull. Um, oh, no. Do not, do not feel that your obligation is that. Well, uh, let me say it a different way. I found it spectacularly dull. Maybe you won't. No, I, I, I feel like <laughs> if you find something dull, I feel like we're generally the same wavelength, that sort of thing. Maybe I'll hop ship. I'll, I have also Mad Men, which I've never seen, and the Comedy Bang Bang TV show, which I've never seen. Two very off brand never scenes for me. So there's other reasons for me to use the app still. Don't worry. Yeah. But well, you I'll, should, I'll, like, don't let me put you off. You should definitely give it a go. But yeah, I, I do love really Dominic Monaghan. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Do- Dominic Monaghan is the main reason to watch it. Uh, yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting into anti-recommendations now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, since I have took the baton so thoroughly, I guess I'll just keep going with my recommendation. Uh, it's it's a older film, though still within the decade, called Under the Skin, which I just was noticed was on HBO Max. And threw it on one night uh, while under the influence, let's say. And it was a riveting experience. It's an incredible movie that's like nothing else. Uh, The most notable thing about it is probably Mika Levy's uh, score, which is just pounding and punishing. And this fully narrative score that... uh, This fully narrative score that really pushes the thoughts of the very otherwise silent or not very talkative Scarlett Johansson main character forward. I mean, it's about, I guess, less you know the better, but Scarlett Johansson is some kind of other creature from another world, uh, seducing men and absorbing them in a very creative way. Let's call it that. (laughs) And there's a lot of uh, sexual stuff at play as well. But it's, God, it's so good. Um, It's just a wonderful movie that I highly recommend. And uh, yeah, I just feel I have to also shout out to Michael Levigan because they are also non-binary. And so there's a connection there, but it's also just an incredibly well shot, uh, well acted movie that is unlike anything else I've seen. It, I mean, speak of 2001, I think it hits that same sort of art film level of just, this is very abstract, conveying a lot of difficult ideas in, and very genre ideas while keeping you at arm's length in a very in a way that just keeps you hooked. I utterly adore Under the Skin. It's one of my favorite films. I love, I mean, I generally love Scarlett Johansson anyway, but she is so good in what is almost a wordless role. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. it's set in my native Glasgow, which naturally inclines mm-hmm. me towards uh, liking it anyway. Uh, but it's just such a powerful and unusual piece of cinema. Um, it's such a showcase for everybody involved and what I love about it is how quiet it is in places mm-hmm. um, just like the stillness especially when like, I'm, like again so not really spoilers but like when they're walking into the house uh, with like the black water and when uh, the men are being absorbed all that stuff is very slow and quiet it's just oh, I, I adore everything about that film and I, I could not co-sign that recommendation more it's such a brilliant piece 
I should probably crack on now, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, those are both two great recommendations. Mine is a sitcom because, you know, I was going to have a change of pace, right? Um, so although it's broadcast six episodes out of uh, uh, an initial season of eight at, at time of recording, uh, I'm going to reboot, I'm going to recommend Reboot, which is a, a, a comedy uh, uh, created by Stephen Levitin. Um, it's great it's really really good it's a, an almost exact midpoint between 30 rock and the uh tasman grieg uh, matt leblanc series uh, episodes um it's uh it's about uh, a, a sitcom which got cancelled um but they're doing as you might gather from the title a reboot so the older cast are coming back together um it's one of those premises that could be incredibly sort of smug and self-important but it isn't it hits exactly that same sort of sweet spot as 30 rock where it's able to be about the industry but it's never kind of uh it, it's not too obsessed by it it's perfectly able to be critical of it whilst also understanding where the pleasures of kind of the tv industry uh lie it's an amazing cast um first and foremost of course the insanely hot keegan michael k who's just just gorgeous. I'm sorry to say, I realize it's a very brilliant reason to watch something, but honestly, he's just so hot in this. Uh, but brilliantly funny, of course he is. He's absolutely wonderful. Uh, Judy Greer is amazing in this. Paul Reiser, I'm always happy to see Paul Reiser in anything. It's great to see him doing something like this. Rachel Bloom is incredible. It's just such a stat cast. It's very, very oh, wow. funny. That is a stat um, cast. Uh, it's just a, a, you know, like a standard half hour sitcom um it's it's lovely it's just it's such a i wasn't expecting it to be very much so maybe i had lowered expectations but it's just such a delight um and i i just i can't recommend it highly enough it's on hulu in the us i don't know where it is in the uk or indeed if it's in anywhere in the uk but yeah it's on hulu in the us and uh it's just great and just in case i haven't mentioned it already keegan michael k so hot yeah i mean right there with you so, yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Um, yeah, Alice, I, I throw it to your plugs. I think we already pre-discussed that you don't have anything to plug. You're just hanging out. I, I'm just a person. I don't have anything to plug. Not very exciting or online. All... Or maybe I am online, but... All good. No find. worries. <laughs> um, and yes, you can find more of this podcast on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. Uh, you can email us talkingtrektoyou at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K E V K O E S E R. I also frequently guest on the action movie podcast Total Massacre. And uh, that's Rowan Kaiser's action movie podcast. Uh, you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, we will wrap it up there for The Crunches of the King. And Alice, thank you very much for joining us this week. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. I'm glad to hear it. Next week, we will be continuing through our little trek through the stars. And we have a real classic. So the big question is, of course, going to be whether it can live up to its reputation, especially given the end of Strange New World Season 1. That means we are going to be tackling Balance of Terror. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>